going to continue in our study of 2 Corinthians, so if you'll turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, we'll begin reading at verse 1. And if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We want you to follow along with us. We're going to cover the first 10 verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Just raise your hand. And uh, you might also want to, to reach over and we want to silence our cell phones or anything that goes beep during uh, service. And so uh, we just want to be free to hear God's word and free from distractions. So 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Also, I just want to uh, just remind you that um, and if you're visiting with us, uh, we're blessed that you're here um, and visiting with us here at Calvary Chapel. And we study the scriptures here chapter by chapter and verse by verse. So we've studied the first six chapters of 2 Corinthians. And so we'll be in chapter 7 uh, this morning and we'll begin reading at verse 1. So 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. Did you make your way there? All right. We do read in verse 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so, Lord, we come this morning, and we do come in the fear of the Lord, just a reverence for you and knowing that you are a holy God and that, Lord, that uh, you want so much for us in our lives. And you desire for us this morning to, to hear the message that Paul was inspired to write, a letter to the Corinthians that is a letter to us as well. And Lord, because of your love for us and your desire for us to, to have the closeness with you and, and really with one another as well as brothers and sisters, that you desire for us, Lord, to, to have our hearts be open to you and Lord, our ears to be listening and hearing and Lord, for us to take heed to what your word declares. And so we come this morning desiring just that, to just uh, learn of you and, Lord, to receive instructions. And that's what my prayer is, that all of us, we, we made the effort to be here this morning. And so, Lord, we desire right now to, to just hear your word and to be touched very deeply by it. So we give you this time, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we open up the chapter here, the Apostle Paul is really putting a conclusion, if you would, to what we looked at last week in chapter 6, beginning at verse 14. And you recall that as Paul was bringing some more instruction and correction to the Corinthian believers, he would say to them that they are not to be yoked uh, together with unbelievers. Don't be unequally yoked together is what he says. And it was a problem with the Corinthian believers, obviously, because Corinth was a very wicked city. There was a lot of idolatry and immorality and that was taking place, and the Christians were coming out of that. And there was still a problem with some of them yoking themselves with those who were unbelievers. And so Paul gave that instruction uh, there for them not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And he would say, therefore, you have these promises and we can read this here in verse 1 of chapter 7, and we can think, now what promises? Well, in verse 16 of the previous chapter, as the Lord says that I will dwell with them and walk among them, I will be their God and they shall be my people, as you come out from among them and be separate, and I will receive you and I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters. And we talked about that uh, in detail last week. And so as believers, we're told not to yoke with or be joined with 
unbelievers in relationships and businesses and places that we hang out and so forth. Don't be joined to a non-believer. And so again, we talked about what that means. It does not mean that we end our marriage if our spouse is an unbeliever. Matter of fact, Paul wrote to the Corinthians that you stay with your spouse. You are to love them. You are to pray for them. It does not mean that if your boss or supervisor is an unbeliever that you have to go and quit your job. It does not mean that you never talk to others who are unbelievers. But Paul says, don't be joined with, yoked together with an unbeliever. If you're single, don't date or marry an unbeliever. Be careful in your business partnerships and so forth, where there is this yoking together, where there is this traveling together, because the unbeliever will want to, to go in another direction. So here we have this straightforward command of the scriptures, and as we separate ourselves from worldly thinking and acting, we are promised a closer relationship with God. And so Paul is kind of painting this picture before us that there are promises given to us, blessings for us, if we walk in holiness and come out and be separate. Don't yoke yourselves to unbelievers, where you're being tossed around and directed, and where you're being influenced by the world. I will be a father to you. Paul writes at the end of chapter 6, as we read in verse 18. As you separate yourselves, not that he's not your father, as we talked about last week, if I fail to come out and be separate, it does not mean that I lose my salvation if I develop this partner relationship, you know, in business with an unbeliever or so, so forth. But what it means is that the Lord is telling us that I want to bless your life. And I want you to be blessed in the way that you could be and should be. And the Lord says, be separate and be holy so that I can bless you in the way that I desire to. I want to be like a father to you. And in light of these promises, verse 1, we are to do two things. Number one, we are to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness. Now, how do we do that? How do we cleanse ourselves from filthiness? We know that there's a cleansing that God alone does in our lives as we trust in Jesus and the work that he did for us on Calvary's cross. We know the promise of 1 John 1, 9 declares that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we are cleansed from our sins by the blood of Jesus. So what does Paul mean here when he says that we are to cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit? Well, after we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we still need cleansing that takes place on a daily basis in our lives and in our hearts because there's the contamination of the world. There's the filthiness of the world. And people will say to me, Pastor Jeff, pray for me because I'm struggling with this sin. I'm, I'm struggling with this thing. And I'll pray for them. And I'll tell them that to cleanse themselves. And the question is, well, how do you do that on a regular and daily basis? Paul told us to separate ourselves. Come out from among them. Make that decision not to turn on that channel or that TV or watch that DVD. Or get rid of that internet if you're pulling up things that you shouldn't be looking at. Don't get involved in that relationship. If you know that it is wrong, be cleansed. Submitting yourself to God is what you are to do. To do it God's way. Be intimate with the Lord. 
Submerge yourself in the Word of God. You can't cleanse yourself from filthiness if you're submitting yourself to the world, if you're intimate with the world, if you're submerging yourself in the world's ways and philosophies. You're going to get dirty and you're going to get stained, and that sin will continue to eat away at you. It's kind of like leprosy. Now, in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, in chapter 13, we know that leprosy is spoken of. And it is instructed to the priests to take those who were suspected of leprosy outside of the camp, and they were to inspect that individual. And they would inspect them, and perhaps that leprosy would start out in small ways. Maybe just a, a scab or a small mark a, on the skin, a white mark or something like that. But if you truly had leprosy, it would begin to spread. It would begin to eat at you literally. And there's no treatment for it, of course, in, in Bible times. There's no cure for it even today. And there are some places in remote parts of the world that there is still a problem with leprosy. And, and what would happen is that disease would begin to spread and it would eat away at your fingers. It would eat away at your nose. Your fingers were would turn into stumps. Your nose would be eaten away. A fluid would begin to flow and ooze from your skin and it would produce a stench and you would begin to stink. You would have to live in a colony with other lepers. You weren't allowed to have contact with other people because it's very contagious. So you would live in these tent colonies or cave colonies and you were ostracized from society. You couldn't see your family. You couldn't get a job. You, you couldn't go to the synagogue. You couldn't go to the temple to worship. And you see in Leviticus chapter 13, leprosy is a picture of sin is what it is because sin can start out small, but if it goes unchecked, if, if it goes where it isn't cleansed by the Lord, it begins to spread and it begins to eat away at you. Sin stinks as it comes from you. There's a story in 2 Kings chapter 5 in the Old Testament. There's a story of a man who had leprosy. He was well known. He was very famous there. He's a powerful figure in Syria. He was a, a general. His name was Naaman. And he was told that there was a prophet in Israel that could do miracles because Naaman came down with leprosy. And it was the servant girl that was taken off into captivity from Israel said, go see the prophet Elijah. He can work miracles and he might do a miracle for you, Naaman. So that's what he did. And, and, and he was told, Naaman, that he could be healed of this leprosy that was eating away at him. So Naaman came down to Israel in his entourage of troops and horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha. And Elisha sent his messenger, his servant, out there to give an answer to Naaman. And he said, Elijah says, you go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times and you shall be cleansed. And Naaman, this, this powerful figure in Syria, at first he was upset he was ticked off because Elijah didn't even come out to see me. He didn't even have the courtesy to come to the door. And I thought that he would come out to me and wave his hands over me and call upon his God and I would be healed. But go dip in the Jordan River seven times? That's ridiculous. And then one of Naaman's advisors says, look, what if he would have told you to, to go and do something very difficult? What if he would have told you to go do something that's very hard? You would have done it. What do you got to lose? Why don't you just do this simple thing and see what happens? And so Naaman went down and he dipped seven times in the Jordan River and he was healed. His flesh was cleansed. 
So how do you and me, what do we do and what do we tell others that are struggling with sin, that is eating at them? It produces a stench in their lives. Well, we tell others that we can minister to what Elijah told Naaman. Oh, I'm not saying that you go tell them to go to Israel and dip in the Jordan River seven times, but we get the message that we can tell others, and it's for ourselves, that you dip yourself, you submerge yourself in the water over and over and over and over. And you might be thinking, what are you talking about, Pastor Jeff? Are you talking about Boyd Lake? Are you talking about the Poudre River? What? No, I'm not. It would be the psalmist that wrote in Psalm 119, how does a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed to the word of God. Thy word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 3, that you have been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Paul, of course, would write in Ephesians chapter 5 that we are washed by the water of the word of God. So we tell others and for our own lives, we submerge ourselves in the word over and over and over again. You be consistent in coming to Bible study. You be consistent in, in hearing the word of God in your own daily devotions. Read your Bibles. The word of God washes you and cleanses you and something will begin to happen as you continue in the word of God and as you take heed to the word of God there's a washing that takes place there's a washing of the leprosy that has been eating away at you as the word of God begins to wash you and cleanse you there's that cleansing that takes place of the sin that's eating away at you so Paul says that we are to cleanse ourselves as an act and a decision that you do Naaman said okay I'll go ahead and I'll do what Elijah's servant told me to do I'll dip seven times in the Jordan and as you make that decision I'm going to separate myself from the filthiness of the world and I'm going to be in the word of God and I'm going to fill my heart with the word of God. You will find yourselves being cleansed. And notice that Paul said, cleanse yourself from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Interesting, isn't it? You see, sometimes it's easier for some to deal with the filthiness of the flesh than the filthiness of the spirit. You say, what do you mean by that, Pastor Jeff? You see, during Jesus' earthly ministry, there were those who were stained by the filthiness of the flesh, such as sinners and harlots and tax collectors. They found it easier to come to Jesus, but those stained and dirtied by the filthiness of the Spirit, such as the religious leaders, they found it very hard to come to Jesus. Filthiness of the spirit we don't often think of or focus on. It can be our pride. It can be legalism, our self-focus, our self-righteousness, bitterness. It can be harder for people to deal with than the obvious fleshly sins that we can see in a person's outward actions. It was Jesus that indicted those Pharisees and scribes for the filthiness of the spirit. They outwardly looked so righteous. They were so holy with their robes and with their phylacteries and their rituals and their washings and their boastings about how spiritual they were, but their hearts were not right with the Lord. And Jesus would say, woe to you. Now, when Jesus says, woe to you, that is a very serious indictment. And woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees. Outward, you're like a whitewashed tomb, but inwardly, you're full of dead men's bones. 
And as we consider what Paul is saying, inspired by the Spirit of God, we may say, well, I don't have much filthiness of the flesh. Well, how about of the Spirit of the heart? What's going on inside of your heart that others may not see it? But the Lord sees it. Those things stirring around in your heart, the grudges that you have, the hardness of heart, the pride that you might have, the feelings of unforgiveness, of bitterness towards someone, those things that are not good and pure, the anger, the lustful thoughts. The scriptures says that we're to deal with it all. And Paul continues writing in verse 2 now, Open your hearts to us, for we have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have cheated no one. Don't reject us. We haven't done you any wrong. We haven't cheated you in any way. We've been honest with you. So uh, open up your hearts to us. And of course, throughout this epistle, we have discussed how Paul was just sharing his heart with the Corinthians. He loved them. He had a concern for them. He said, we're here to serve you. You know what manner we came in in just serving you and being open to you and not taking from you. Unlike the others that we're going to see later on in this epistle, that were ruling over the people with a heavy hand, those super apostles and prophets that were false apostles and prophets. And so Paul is once again saying, we've opened your, our hearts to you, you open your hearts to us. You know that we've come wanting to benefit you in the things of Christ. Verse 3, I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. So Paul didn't want to condemn the Christians there at Corinth. He, he wanted fellowship between him and, and them to be restored. Do you know that it is possible to confront without condemning? I think that sometimes we think that when someone comes and confronts us or brings correction to us, that automatically they're condemning us. And that's not the case at all, oftentimes. Matter of fact, the scripture says that when we see a brother or sister that is in a trespass or a sin or doing wrong, that we, out of love and a desire for them to, to do well in the things of God and, and to be restored and forgiven, that we are to come and bring them the word of God and we are to bring correction to them. It's because we care for people. And if we really love people and care for them, we will do that in our life, coming for there to be a desire, hey, brother, this is wrong. Hey, sister, that, that this needs to be correction according to the word of God, that you might draw closer to the Lord and again experience his forgiveness and that closeness and that intimacy and then that fellowship with the other brothers and sisters may be close as well. So Paul says, listen, understand, I'm not condemning you. Even though I've been honest with you and I've brought correction to you, I want there to be you to be restored in a close relationship with the Lord and also in a close relationship with us. So verse 4, great is my boldness of speech towards you and great is my boasting on your behalf. I'm filled with comfort. I'm exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. So Paul telling the Corinthians, boy, did we really go through it. We had struggles from every side. Outside were conflicts and inside we had fears, but God comforts us. And I love this verse, God who comforts the downcast. And that is good news for us this morning. Because maybe you're here this morning 
And maybe you feel like that you've been downcasted. Maybe you're going through a season where you're really going through it on every side. Know this, that God comforts the downcast. It was Paul when he opened up this epistle said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our tribulations, not in some of our tribulations, but all of our tribulations. And if you're going through some difficulties and tribulations this morning, the Lord is here to bring comfort to you. We have a God who brings comfort to us. And here's the thing that catches my attention. Paul says that we're going through it. We're really going through the ringer from every side. We're being troubled. But we know that God comforts us when we are downcast. How were they comforted? By the coming of Titus, verse 6. I was comforted when Titus finally met with me and, and came to us. Titus was one of, course, Paul's young disciples, protégés that Paul had taken under his wing. He discipled these young men, such as Timothy and Titus and others. So Titus was a student of Paul, a young protégé, if you would, of Paul. And he used Titus, Paul did, to deliver a letter to Corinth. And while Titus was there with those Christians, Paul says, we went through a season where we were troubled on the inside, from the outside. But then Titus caught up with us. And we are comforted by that. Now, I don't want us to miss this because we can kind of just read over this. But as I think about that, I wonder what would have been my reaction if I was in this situation as Paul was. Oh, Titus came. Big deal. One of the guys came along, you know, one of my students. I mean, Lord, I'm really going through it here. I'm going through some tough times. Why can't you send me somebody that is, you know, well-known or famous like Billy Graham or Chuck Smith, but Titus, he's just one of my boys. He's young. I've been teaching him. But Paul didn't have that kind of attitude at all. And Paul said, I was comforted by the coming of Titus. I think that we can stop here just for a moment, and, and I think that we have a principle here that is worth our considering and I think worth remembering, and it's simply this, that the Lord will bring comfort to us, oftentimes through the least expected person. It will come at the least expected time, and it will come in the least expected way. But so oftentimes we miss it. We miss it. They said about Jesus as they were out there on that boat being tossed around in that storm, and and they saw somebody walking on the water. They said, it's a ghost in the fourth watch of the night. As Jesus stood in the synagogue there in Nazareth, and as he was reading from the scroll of Isaiah, it was Jesus that said, speaking of the coming of the Messiah, that this reading has been fulfilled in your hearings. And they said, isn't this the carpenter's son? But it was God's son, and they missed it. It was there at the tomb that Mary came to the tomb very troubled because they had put Jesus to death three days previously. And the stone of the tomb had been rolled away and the potty was gone. And she turned to see who she perceived to be the gardener. Said, where is he? Where is he? It would be shortly after that on the road to Emmaus, two disciples were walking together talking about all the events of the past week and the one who they crucified and there was one they perceived as a stranger that drew near to them and began to talk with them. 
And they said, stranger, don't you know what has happened in the, around here in this last week? What's going on? Are you just coming into town? You're asking about these events that you don't know. And those two didn't realize that it was Jesus that was walking with them until he had left them and their eyes were open. And they were comforted because they realized that it was the Lord. Mary, when she turned to that supposed gardener, where did you put his body? Where did you put it? Tell me. And I will go and get it and I will bring it back. But then she realized that it was her Lord as he just simply spoke that, that word Mary. And she was comforted by that. Those that were in that boat, those scared disciples that were crying out, it is a ghost. But they didn't realize that it was Jesus comfort coming to them to bring comfort to them in their hour of need. And you see, I point this out to you because I believe for you and your life, and for us here in this fellowship, that the Lord will bring comfort to you. But oftentimes it's going to come through the unexpected person at perhaps the unexpected time. And it may come in the least expected way. And what I hope and pray is that we don't miss it. Oh, it's just the neighbor. What does he know? What does she know? Eh, wave at him, but that's all I got time for. Well, maybe the neighbor that you run into as you're getting your paper and they're taking a walk is the Lord is bringing them to you to bring comfort to you. Oh, it's just the guy who hands out the bulletins at the door that I see at church that's standing in line behind me as I stand in line at the store and I've had a, a very discouraging day. Maybe it's the Lord that has brought that individual to bring comfort to you and understanding to you. You see, the Lord will bring that person, that stranger, that, that, that gardener, that neighbor, that individual, when you're troubled on every side. And God who comforts those who are downcast brought comfort to us by the coming of Titus. So I want to say this to you this morning. Don't miss your Titus. It might be a son, it might be a daughter. It might be a neighbor. It might be your brother and sister here in the fellowship. It might be somebody that you would never think would have much to offer. And I think that at times we miss out because we believe the only one that can bring me comfort is the pastor or some prophet or the government or whoever it's well known. And they miss the Lord and what he wants to bring to you and perhaps the person who may be sitting right next to you this morning that they're your Titus, to bring comfort, to build you up by their coming to you. We continue verse 7, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice even more. Not only were we comforted by his coming, Titus, but also that he gave a good report about you Christians at Corinth. It's not all bad about me. You hadn't forsaken me completely. You're hearing some of the things that I'm saying to you, and it brought rejoicing to him. And God is doing a work among you there in Corinth. And verse 8, for even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it. 
though I did regret it, for I perceived that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. In verse 10, for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Paul shares with us a concern that he had, and that was the corrective letter that he wrote to the Corinthians. He begins to wonder if he should have sent that letter. Now, most scholars believe that the letter that he's referring to at this time wasn't actually 1 Corinthians, which was a corrective letter as we read it in the scriptures, but this is another one which Titus had brought to them, and apparently it was a corrective letter. It was a hard letter for Paul to write to them, and it was apparently kind of a get right down to the point, and you guys need correcting, and you need to turn from these things. But Paul, again, as he's been expressing, was very open and honest with them. Paul knew that he was to send that letter, and he says, I did not regret it. But then he had concerns that perhaps it would bring a serious rift between the Christians of, at Corinth and himself that it would perhaps be too confrontational. And that's why he also says, I believe, though I did regret it. It's kind of like, have you ever sent a letter? Well, most of us don't send letters anymore. We send emails and tweets and texts and all of that. But have you ever sent something like that, an email, and, and is you know, very much uh, something that was on your heart and, and maybe a little bit hard and, and you sent it and all of a sudden you thought, oh no, I wish I didn't press that button. I wish I could call it back. And you start to second guess yourself. But Paul goes on to say, but I rejoice in how you responded, that verse 9. It made you sorrowful, but that your sorrow led to repentance. It led you to turn to the Lord. And then he says in verse 10, I have verse 10 underlined in my Bible, that this is godly sorrow, which produces repentance, leading to salvation. Sometimes people say, what do you mean? Weren't they Christians? Yes, but you see, the word salvation here not only means rescue, but it also means safety and health. It, it means the full orb of God's blessing. Salvation, it does speak of being born again. Of course it does. But also the blessing of being in the safety of the Lord after salvation. Because there are times that we need to turn away from that habit, that sin, that attitude, and turn to Him after salvation. We're being stained with sin. We come to God in repentance. We come to him initially when we recognize that we are sinners. And we need the Savior of the world as we repent and we turn directions. Turn from the way that we are going, the way of the world. And we turn 180 degrees and we turn to God through Jesus Christ and recognize the work that he did on Calvary's cross. And we surrender our hearts to him and trusting in him. Repentance is not, I have to clean up my act first before I come to Christ. It is realizing that I cannot clean up my act until I do come to Christ. So it is turning to Him. And we are given an opportunity this morning, as we do every service for you who have not done that, to repent and turn to Jesus Christ and be forgiven and be saved and come into salvation. But in our lives and in our journey with the Lord, there are times where we can get off track and we have to turn back to Him in certain areas of our lives that is keeping us in bondage. You're turning to God. 
that, that you might be blessed, that you might be saved in all aspects of life, and that salvation is brought about by repentance. Godly sorrow will lead to repentance. Sorrow and repentance is not the same thing because sorrow alone accomplishes nothing. There are those who can be sorry for their sin, have sorrow for their sin, without repenting from their sin. So here we are told godly sorrow will lead to repentance, which is a, a key, a truth, an understanding of the Bible. And we see that absolute necessity of repentance from Genesis to Revelation. God's men came on the scene and consistently said, here's the key, repent, turn to God. It is not a message of, I'm okay and you're okay. It's not a message of, you just got to tap into the champion within you. It's not a message of possibility thinking. It is the message of the men of God and Jesus. It was repentance. There is sin and there needs to be a change of direction and turning to God. It's a singular message in scripture that there needs to be repentance and a true turning to God to be saved eternally and then in your own personal situation where there needs to be a change of direction. So Paul is careful to say that godly sorrow it, it produces repentance and leads to salvation. But he goes on to say, but the sorrow of the world leads to death. You see, I've met people that have sorrow for what they have done or what they've said, but they have not repented, as I said. Sorrow alone accomplishes nothing. There are plenty of people that are sorrowful, sorry they got caught doing something or now they have to face the consequences, the repercussions of their actions, but there's no change of direction. There's no repentance. There's no interest in turning to God. There's a sorrow of the world which causes you to be hung up on guilt and doubt and despair and brings you into bondage. And then there's godly sorrow, which means that I'm going to repent and I'm going to change direction today. I'm going to go a different way and I'm going to go God's way. You see, there's a story in the gospel of two men. They both failed miserably on the same day. But one of them experienced godly sorrow, the other worldly sorrow that led to death, literally, for him. You see, both of them had pretty much left everything to follow this one Jesus of Nazareth. They walked with him and listened to him for three years. They, they then began to see that some heavy things were beginning to unfold in the spring of the year. And one of those men called Judas Iscariot found himself with a dark, hard heart, and he plotted to betray the one that he had followed, the one that the religious leaders were determined to see put to death. He had claimed to be the Son of God, and so Judas cut a deal with those religious leaders. He would betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave, according to the Old Testament. And he said to those religious leaders that I will identify him in the garden with a kiss, and you can take him away. And that's what they did, is those religious leaders and the, and the temple soldiers would come, and they would arrest Jesus and take him bound up away. Eventually, as Matthew chapter 27 tells us, that in the early morning hours, Jesus bound up would be led away to Pontius Pilate. 
And in verse 3 of the chapter, we read, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What's that to us? You see to it. And then it tells us that he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed. And he went out and he hung himself. Judas seeing that things were getting complicated. He's going to be condemned. Judas felt remorseful, sorry, he felt bad. So he goes back to the temple and he says, here, take the money back. I betrayed innocent blood. And the religious leader said, we're not touching that stuff. That's your problem. You deal with it. So Judas hurled it on the floor of the temple, and then the religious leaders, they had to deal with it. They had to do something with the money. They couldn't put it back in the temple treasury, and so what they did is they ended up buying a field. They took the blood money, and they bought a field, and they called that field the field of blood. And Judas was sorry, remorseful. He went out and he hung himself on a tree because he was all hung up on guilt, And Acts tells us that the branch would break when Judas hung himself and he fell on the ground and he burst open in his entrails. And it was an ugly, messy scene. Now at the same time, the second man, his name Peter, he knew heavy things were coming down as well. And at that time that Judas was betraying Jesus, Peter was denying Jesus. Peter loved the Lord and he said, I'll never forsake you, Lord, I'll be with you. And I'll stay with you in this dangerous hour. But Jesus told him in that upper room, Peter, when you hear the sound of the rooster, you're going to deny me three times. And you know what happened when it did happen. That Peter wept bitterly. He sobbed. He thought he had sinned away the day of grace. He had cursed and sweared and denied. And we read that Jesus looked on him and it crushed Peter. But Peter was sorrowful and it was godly sorrow That led to repentance, and you see, that was the difference between Judas and Peter. Judas displayed worldly sorrow. Look what I've done. Look at the mess that I've made. Uh, Look at the consequences. But he did not repent, but rather he went out and he hung himself. And he made a mess of things. And I see it where people make a mess of their lives. And they get hung up on all this stuff and, it, and guilt and shame and all of this. And thinking, I'm sorry for the consequences and what I'm going through, but, but no true repentance. And so they continue to be hung up on those things rather than looking to the one and repenting to the one who hung on a tree for them and for their sins. What Peter did as he was restored is he turned to the Lord. And he looked to the one who hung on a tree for him. And you see, Peter was able to be forgiven and able to be used big time of the Lord. And he wasn't hung up with the guilt and despair that does in so many because that's what sin does. And it leads to just a darkness and a death inside of our hearts and in our souls. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. It means you get rid of that computer, brother, if you're sneaking downstairs at night and you're pulling up pornography. 
It means that you go to that cupboard and you dump out that liquor that has caused you to be in bondage and depression and it's destroying your marriage and your family. It means you turn to the Lord and you turn away from that sin. If you don't, you're going to find yourself being hung up in all kinds of guilt and shame and repercussions and you're going to find yourself in bondage and you're going to find yourself making a mess of things. Godly sorrow works repentance, and repentance brings salvation. I am free, and you will not regret it. You will never, never regret repentance. The apostle writes, the sorrow of the world just produces death. It will just produce death in your heart and in your soul. You can ask people who were once with us, and they would not repent of their sin, and now they're going through difficult things and difficult days because they're hung up on the guilt. They're hung up on the despair. They're in bondage to the consequences. You see, oftentimes we think the word repentance is a harsh word, that it conjures up pictures of a preacher with his finger pointing and a snarl on his face, yelling to repent. We think of restriction and limitations. And you better toe the line you better walk a straight line. But listen to the heart of the apostle, to those at Corinth. And if he was here, he would say the same thing to us here at Calvary Chapel. Listen, he says, I rejoice that you are made sorry because godly sorrow will lead to repentance, which leads to salvation. And you will have life and you will experience life abundantly. You'll live life the way it was meant to be lived. And you'll never regret it. And you'll experience his peace and joy. And you'll have intimacy with the Lord. If you just have worldly sorrow, I'm sorry for what I have to face because of my sin and the trouble that I'm in, the problems that I have brought, the consequences that it has on my family, if that is it, then it will bring a death to your life and to your heart and to your soul. And that's what it will bring. Because you got caught. Because you're going through difficulties. God is calling us for there to be repentance in our lives when there needs to be. And to know this, that it's a wonderful thing. Because sin is what destroys and bounds up and brings death. It's repentance and pursuing holiness which brings joy and peace and brings freedom. And it brings the blessing of God who wants to bless us so much who's provided salvation for us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for these few verses that are so powerful. It may be something that we take heed to this morning. That what the heart of the apostle, hearing your heart and writing these words down, speaking about repentance, we know that when we come to you, that the gospel message is there needs to be repentance. There needs to be a turning away from the world and turning to Jesus Christ for forgiveness and salvation. And as I mentioned, we want to give anyone an opportunity to do that. If you're here in the sanctuary or if you're out in a coffee shop or if anyone is listening to this message on the radio at a later time that Jesus Christ went to the cross for you and provided forgiveness of sin, the hope of heaven, and to bring you into right relationship with the Father because no one can come to him except through Jesus Christ as you realize that I am a sinner 
And the wages of sin is death, literal death. It's spiritual death, separation from God. But Jesus Christ hung on that cross and died for your sins. And as you come in faith and trust and recognizing that he's the son of God, who came and died for you personally and specifically for your sins. And as you surrender your heart, as you repent, as you come to him this morning, then salvation comes to you. And as we have already seen that Paul would write to these Corinthian believers that today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. And if you are here and you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, if you're unsure that, that if I were to die today or tomorrow, or if the Lord was to come back, I don't know if I'm going to go to heaven. I don't know if I have that relationship with Jesus. We want to give you the opportunity to have it something that, that you know and you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart and know that Jesus Christ rose from the grave, that he's alive knocking on the door of your heart. Open your heart to him this morning. And you pray, Jesus, that I am a sinner and I confess it. And I now turn to you, Jesus, to be my personal Lord and Savior because I believe in my heart that you're the Son of God who came and died for me on Calvary's cross. Forgive me of my sins. And I believe that you were put into a grave and you rose again from the grave because you're knocking on the door of my heart right now. And I open it up and I let you in. And I turn to you. I surrender my life to you right now. And help me to live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. And if anyone in this sanctuary, if you prayed that prayer this morning, I want you to just raise your hand. Anybody at all for giving your life to Christ? If you're out in a coffee shop, we want you to raise your hand. If you're listening on the radio, we want you to call and give us a call and tell us your decision so we can encourage you and pray for you. Anybody in the sanctuary here this morning at all? Don't be afraid. We're not going to make this an extended time. Anybody at all? God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? Don't let this time get away from you. I see you. God bless you. You can put your hand down. Father, I thank you for this one who has raised his hand. I thank you that he's humbled his heart and come to you for salvation. If any others, maybe in a coffee shop, or Lord, that have been touched by your word, I thank you that your word is true and that a heart that sincerely turns to you, that, Lord, that there is a living hope. I thank you for your forgiveness. And I pray that as we just rejoice in salvation for this one or whoever else gave their life to the Lord this morning, that, Lord, that you would bless them, help them to grow in your word. And Lord, that they would stay close to you. Father, that's my prayer for all of us. And while we just got a minute, that if there is sin in your life, and not just of the outward flesh, but of the inner heart, that the Lord's been dealing with you, take a moment right now and confess it. And there may be true repentance, a turning to the Lord, because if you don't, it's just going to produce sorrow in your life and bondage. And it produces just death in your heart and in your soul.
that we would come to understand truly that as we just come to you right now, Lord, that there's a difference between worldly sorrow and true repentance. That there would be a turning to you because, Lord, we know that we struggle and we can't do anything in and of ourselves. It has to be you, Lord, working in us so we rely on you and we surrender to you. But there's that step of making that decision. That, Lord, enough. And I turn to you now in repentance. That that would be taking place in anyone's heart right now. Father, I thank you for this time that we've had together this morning. And Lord, I thank you for just what you're doing here and the work that you're doing in this little fellowship. And Thank you for having the, the scrolls that are here. I pray that people would just be stirred in their hearts about how incredible the Word of God is and how it's been preserved. Just as your Word says that it will be preserved for all eternity. We thank you for this time together. Bless our week coming up. Fill us with your love. Fill us with your peace. Guide us and direct us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, Amen. Would you please stand?